All right. If you're a movie-going person or an avid reader of youth fiction, uh, because it makes you feel like you're good at reading books, um, then you've read the Hunger Games series, right? Uh, and the, if you haven't, um, you should. I don't know. Um, but uh, I like to read young adult fiction because the words are small, and it makes me feel smart. So uh, you can go ahead and do that as well. Comic books work for that. Um, but the uh, Hunger Games, if you are familiar or if you aren't familiar, it's, it's a book series and now a movie series that's set in the future, and uh, there's this ruling city uh, of the, the capital that uh, oppresses these districts uh, in this future America, and, uh, or it's not called America anymore, but in this, the way that they oppress them and, and keep control over them is, uh, is through, um, uh, like, basically slave labor. Uh, but if the slaves who live in the majority of the country uh, rebel, then they lose the benefits that the ruling class gives them, uh, like food and general safety. So they live in squalor, they live in extreme poverty, uh, but, they, but the options between that and something else, the terrible rule of the capital is better. And the capital does these things, they're called the Hunger Games, where two people are chosen from each, two young people are chosen from each um, district, and they go into this uh, kind of stadium, and uh, they actually, it's kind of like gladiator games. They fight to the death, and, and it's a terrible thing, but it, it's a way of distracting uh, the people from the reality around them, uh, from the power that inherently they have. And uh, you can go ahead and read those if you're into that kind of a story or something like that. But um, what the, where the author gets this is very much from empires that have ruled the world, notably like in the time of Jesus, the Roman Empire. Because the Roman Empire was so powerful over uh, basically the entire known world that it was better to be a part of the Roman Empire than to try to fight the Roman Empire. If you tried to fight them, you'd end up oppressed. You'd end up with no food and no fun. But if you just joined them, you'd end up with very little, but you'd end up with something. Your life would be terrible, but it wouldn't be over. And so the Roman Empire, they would allow you to bring your own religion in. As long as the Caesar, their king, was also, who was, Caesar was, not just the political king, he was the religious god as well. And uh, as long as you put him above the other gods you had, you could do whatever you wanted as far as religion goes. And, and the, the Romans would actually, they had like a saying, if you know history at all, they had the Romans provided bread and circus. And, and it was very much, you would make sure you had something to eat and they would make sure you had something fun to watch, hence the gladiator games. As, and it's in a weird, weird thing that they would have sports where people endured suffering for the rest of their life or were killed, um, and we looked at it and cheered because we don't do that. Um, <laughs> all right, so <laughs> just throwing that out there. But uh, we like to be judgmental and look backwards that way, and then people get concussions and break their legs, and we go, well, good try. All right. Um, <laughs> When we, I'm not allowed to make beaver jokes, I've been told today, so um, we can make all the duck jokes we want. Is that not allowed? So, <laughs> so stupid. So, um, Jesus walks into the scene, uh, in, walks into this 
culture where the Roman Empire is in charge of everything, and the Roman Empire provides bread and circus, uh, safety, and you know enough to live on, even though most people are living in poverty. Uh, it's enough to get by, and it's better to get by than to try to overtake or fight against the Romans. And there's uh, stories, there's actual, like in the Jewish community, there's terrorist organizations, they're classified as terrorist organizations by the Romans, who would uh, attack the Romans. And there were revolts, the Maccabean revolt, and the Sicarii were the name of the terrorists. They're called the Dagger Men. And they would just walk into a crowd and stab a Roman or stab a Roman sympathizer, and everyone would freak out. And there was terrorist actions against this Roman Empire. Um, but we, history tells us, since they lost, they're now the bad guys. And so we, but this is a real political thing that Jesus is walking into. And this, uh, when Jesus is in this culture, the story that we talked about last week, and it really affects the story this week, was of the, there was kind of this puppet king that Rome had given this ruler here. You rule this area for us, and we'll give you a bunch of authority and a bunch of resources, and you can tax these people so you can have a good life, but you have to rule them and make sure they don't rise up. And the guy's name in Jesus' area, his name was Herod Antipas. And he's a terrible, terrible, terrible ruler. Terrible. And uh, in the story from last week, just before this, at the beginning of chapter 14, he actually is throwing this party um, where he um, brings, actually brings John the Baptist out and beheads him. And John the Baptist is Jesus' cousin. Uh, they're friends. John the Baptist is the forerunner to Jesus. He's the announcer that Jesus is coming. And so at this party, which is... Uh, full of greed and manipulation and lust and perversion, like sexual perversion at the party, John the Baptist is actually killed. Uh, and Jesus is told this news um, in chapter 14. As Jesus heard this, or in verse 13, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard that Jesus had gone off by himself, they followed him on foot from the towns. And Jesus is on this little, it's, they call it the Sea of Galilee because they had nothing to compare it to. We would call it like a lake. Uh, it was a big lake, but not like one of the Great Lakes or something. But um, Jesus goes out on this boat and the people can see him on shore and they walk around on the shore to try to guess where he's going to land because the crowds need to be close to Jesus. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, meaning they got there before he did. And he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, these are the 12 disciples that Jesus has, this, they say this, this is a desolate place. The day is now over, so send the crowds away to go into the village and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. And they said to him, <laughs> we have only five loaves here and two fish. And Jesus said, bring them here to me. And then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to the heavens and said a blessing. And there he broke, then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they ate all, sorry, and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of the broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about 5,000 men besides the women and children. And so Jesus hears 
Jesus, who's doing public ministry, teaching, healing, doing these things, he's working really hard. And when he's working for God really hard, the news he gets is that his cousin has been beheaded by the political puppet king. Haven't you been there? Like you're doing really good at following Jesus. You're like following up on your commitments. You feel close to God. Your prayer life is on. You're reading your scripture. And then you get the terrible news. And your reaction is, why, like why me? Why now? Why this? Right? Like why is the guy, Jesus, who we would say probably if anyone is doing a good job of following God, it might be Jesus. Why does this happen to him? And why does this happen now? And Jesus reacts just like any of us would and tries to get away. Like he just needs to think. And so he gets in a boat and pushes off into the lake. Imagine if you're as popular as Jesus, there's not a lot of space, right? (laughs) There's not a lot of stories about Jesus hanging out by himself. He always has to get up before everyone else and go hide. You know, while everyone else was sleeping, Jesus is like, all right, I need some alone time, and let's get out of here. And this is what Jesus is doing. And so he gets out on the lake where Jesus can, and he uses a boat, which is kind of funny, because later he's just going to walk on the water, but I guess it's not the time now. (laughs) But he goes out on this boat, and he hangs out, but because the lake is small enough, the people know where he went, and they see him, and this huge crowd of people 5,000 men plus women plus children. So that, like, we can guess maybe 10,000 people. When the largest city in the area is maybe two or 3,000. Like, those are the largest towns around the Lake of Galilee or the Sea of Galilee. And there's a crowd of 10,000 people on the march going back and forth. And Jesus decides to go ashore. I don't know why. <laughs> But by the time he gets to the shore, there's a crowd of 10,000 people waiting to see him. I know you have a lot of responsibilities, (laughs) but probably not 10,000 people who are depending on you to tell them what to do at the moment when you need some alone time. Because life kind of sucks for you right now. This story, the feeding of the 5,000, which is a misnomer because there's way more than 5,000 there, Um, That's a male chauvinistic titling to the text. So if you're a feminist, you can cross that out. Um, (laughs) You can cross out anything you want, I guess. It's your Bible. But but when when Jesus lands on this shore, there's this huge crowd. This story is included in all four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all tell this story. The Gospel of Mark includes a little more detail when Jesus arrives on the shore we read he has compassion on them because Matthew is a little more concise and to the point. The Gospel of Matthew is trying to say that Jesus is king, which is an interesting moment because the actual king right now, the earthly king, just killed Jesus' friend. And the king over that king, Caesar, claims to be God. The common saying would be, Hail Caesar, Caesar is Lord. And Jesus arrives talking about how he is Lord. I mean, Jesus is making a religious statement in what he's doing. 
but he's also making a radical political statement because those two things were combined. They didn't have, you know, we have that separation of church and state. That, that's, that was not the idea in the Roman Empire in Jesus' day. Church and state were the same. They were combined very much. That's hard to understand, but it would be if you got elected president, you were also God, right? Um, which changes the dynamics significantly. And so when, when this story is concluded on all four, the Gospel of Mark actually talks about Jesus had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And sheep and shepherding would be a common profession that these people understood. The shepherds play a major role in the birth of Jesus, in the birth narratives, like we just saw in the video. And so when sheep are walking around, if there's no shepherd guiding them, sheep aren't known for their intelligence or their organizational abilities. <laughs> there's no, like, alpha sheep that rises to the front. You know, they're, they're not like wolves or a lions or an organized entity. They're sheep. And they'll eat all the grass until the grass is done. That's the end. <laughs> Like, they don't then organize and move on or say, hey, let's do something, or what do we do next? No, there's no communication skills. There's no, they're just there. And Jesus looks at this crowd of 10,000 plus. Like, this is a crazy huge crowd. Some people would actually, like, some historians read this story and talk about how they were following Jesus because of the messianic fever and because they thought maybe this is the guy who can organize us so we can overthrow the Romans. And if you have a guy who can heal the sick and feed them, those are two like key elements to have an, an undefeatable army. And the reason that armies lose war is because too many guys drop and they run out of food. And if you have unlimited supply of those two things, and if like your commander is God, maybe you can th overthrow the Romans. And we don't know what the crowd's thinking. We don't know why they're doing what they're doing. But we know where they are in the time they are. You don't make religious statements without making political statements. And so when Jesus arrives, Jesus, when he has every right to be angry with God, gets some space, and he lands, and the people want more from him. And Jesus' reaction, it's interesting because it's not the reaction that we are likely to have. When you're doing really good in your life and things go bad or you get the bad news, you want to lash out and you want to pull back. And Jesus has compassion and begins to pour out and begins to heal their sick. 10,000 people, Jesus arrives and says, all right, this is what I'm here for. And he actually, in his heart, it isn't like he gets hard and he boxes out or he shoves his emotion out. He actually gets emotional. He has compassion on the masses. Which, if you look at the ruling, era, like the entities, the Herod Antipas, the Caesar, the masses are negative. You don't want to be around the masses. The masses are what you, are your subjects. They're the people you oppress. And Jesus looks at the masses and reacts with compassion and moves among them and heals them and eventually feeds them. And he gets there when the disciples, and this is a great moment 
Because in the Gospel of Mark, which was written before the Gospel of Matthew, so a lot of people assume Matthew read Mark and then wrote his own version. Uh, it's, that's just what he was doing. Um, but the Gospel of Mark, the disciples are um, portrayed not that smart. <laughs> and Matthew apparently takes offense at that and tries to include some stories that demonstrate their uh, right decisions instead of their poor decisions. And so Matthew shows that the disciples actually had the right idea. Jesus is having compassion on them. Let's have compassion too. And they go to Jesus and say, it's the end of the day. We're in the middle of nowhere. Let's send these people to the villages where there's food so they can eat. And you can look uh, at the context of the story, Jesus asked them to sit down on the grass, which would mean it's early spring because the grass hasn't died yet in the desolate desert places. And so uh, sending them to the towns in early spring, this, if you have towns around you that are, you defer, call this a desolate place, meaning there's not a lot of towns, and the largest towns around are two or 3,000, and you're sending 10,000 people into those towns to get some food, those towns are going to run out, right? And it's springtime, meaning the harvest that they got last fall is starting to dwindle, and they probably don't have huge storehouses to be able to feed an extra 10,000 folks that are coming to get something to eat. Economically, this is probably going to be a boom for those towns. So maybe that's how the disciples are thinking. Let's Black Friday this joint, you know? <laughs> Jesus, we got all these people, they're crazy, let's get some flat screens out there, you know? Maybe the disciples are thinking, like me, let's go watch, because this is hilarious, all right? Let's watch people embarrass themselves. I was at a store at 8 a.m. on uh, Friday. I had been asleep and got back up, all right? And we went out, and I do this, it's ridiculous, but uh, so I go out 8 a.m., I'm buying some silly thing, and uh, someone is standing there, furious, because they'd been up all night, didn't even get to eat Thanksgiving, and I'm like, but, and they're complaining. And I'm like, you know, you can just not do this, right? Like, I didn't say that out loud, but I was worried she had a gun. But um, <laughs> it's Black Friday, and I'm not from America. So uh, there is this, it's just madness. And maybe the disciples were thinking, hey, let's, we can bless this area economically, send people to the communities to buy some food to get something to eat. But at least they're thinking, like, this is a right, they're thinking right. The disciples are going, hey, we don't want people to be hungry. Let's work something out to get them some food. And they bring their great idea to Jesus. And if you want to know something about God, God loves it when people have ideas that are in line with his heart. Like God loves when people, when you see someone who's hungry and you think, I want to, this, they should, it should not be like that. God loves ha hearing those prayers. God loves having that conversation. The fun thing is, you see people who are in need, and we react and say, God, you need to do something about that. Because God loves to answer that prayer, and here's how he answers it. Uh, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. So we say, God, there's these people in our community that don't have enough. And you need to do something about that. And God says, that's a great idea. You do something about it. But because God obviously isn't in touch or doesn't understand, we answer and say, but we only have five loaves and two fish. 
but things are really tight around here, God, so we're going to need you to solve this because I've only got this much. And it doesn't matter how much you actually have. You might have 100 loaves and 20 fish. You can still feel like there's not enough, right? This is, there's a lot of truth in rap music, and mo' money, mo' problems is truth, all right? <laughs> it is. If you're taking notes, you can write that down. But if you have five loaves and two fish, it doesn't, like, they could have had one loaf and one fish. Uh, I mean, maybe that's, maybe it was big loaves of bread, and maybe they were large fish. Um, maybe not. But they have something, and the disciples have this, they have, so they have this right attitude, but they come up with this, the wrong way of solving the problem. Because we like when we have a problem for God to solve it. Don't we? Like, I mean, I like that. You, we like that. There's something not right in the world. God, please fix it. I would appreciate that. Because I don't like the things. Because we have this sense of justice. And we end up, we're up watching TV late at night and one of those commercials comes on with the starving kids and we change the channel because we have so much compassion that we can't watch that. You see that weird dynamic that happens there? I don't want to watch that because I'm suffering because I care so much. God, please fix that. And God says, yeah, turn the channel back and do something about it. It's the worst answer to prayer ever. God, please fix this person that I don't get along with. And God says, here's how you fix that. Call them. Oh, God. I understand you're nice and everything. And if I was you, I would do that, but I'm not you. And they're a jerk. And I don't want to talk to them. <laughs> oh, God, I know these people, and they're suffering this year this holiday, and I'd just like you to fix that. And God says, well, you don't need to spend all your money on yourself. What if you spent money on them? That's a good idea, God, but I've worked really hard this year, and I deserve this. Thank you for dying on the cross for me, because I believe I deserve that as well. Which is ter That's terrible theology. That's heresy. <laughs> so, this, But the disciples come, and a lot of times we can have, like the disciples, the right attitude. But taking supernatural action instead of just our natural action is a much harder step. Because when we look at the resources we have, they're not as much. You know that um, not everyone on this planet has access to clean water. It's, it's ridiculous. If you have someone who lives in poverty and you tell them, we have this thing in our kitchen, we turn it on, and clean water comes out for days. And when it doesn't, we are furious. Our toilets have clean water in them. That, like that's, the majority of the world thinks that's ridiculous. And for $10 billion, you could get clean water to every person in the world. You don't have that much. Uh, our country, and I contribute to this, spends $10 billion a year on ice cream. And we say, well, what if we just go without ice cream? Well, then we'd screw up the ice cream industry. So we better not do that. Sorry, folks. 
Imagine your dirty water is giving me ice cream. <laughs> it's, it's harsh, but it's complicated. But when we see a problem, God doesn't say, tell me all your problems so I can solve them. Apparently God says, oh, you're giving me a problem. What do you have? Okay, do something about it. And you don't have $10 billion. You don't. Well, maybe you do. If so, we need to talk after. <laughs> but we have some larger offering envelopes we can serve you with. But <laughs> that's, I'm just joking, all right? But, um, but serious. The, if <laughs> the chairs are uncomfortable, and you know, so <laughs> that's terrible. But when you can't do everything, and the disciples are sitting there with five loaves and two fish knowing they can't, feed a crowd of 10,000, and yet Jesus says, go ahead and do something. He does not promise them a miracle. Like, they could have turned around and only fed seven people, and the story is a success. Like, Jesus doesn't owe a miracle. Jesus doesn't owe us to fix whatever problem with the world that is heavy on our hearts. But Jesus does allow us to participate in his solving of the problem because he loves it when we say here's what i've got it's all i've got and i think it would be better in your hands than in my hands i just kind of think that and it's a huge faith step to be able to say all right jesus this is all i have but everything i have i'm going to orient towards your glory instead of thinking I need to hold on to this. You see, God loves, loves to work hand in hand with people who see the needs that he sees and want to work in the direction of God. And you might not have but five loaves and two fish. You might, like, you might have very, very little. And that is not a limiter to the actions of God. And I don't want to take the story and turn it into something moralistic, like you should go out with your five loaves and two fish and feed 10,000 people. You might not get a miracle. Like you might say, I don't like that everyone on earth doesn't have clean water, or I don't like human trafficking, or I don't like worldwide hunger, or I don't like that people in poorer communities don't have access to the education my kids do. I don't like it. And you might have $7, and you use that $7 to do something, and that's the end. And your impact is like this. But your impact is an impact. Because God doesn't owe you some miracle where you're going to give your $7, and magically it's going to turn into $10,000. You, you the TV preachers can pull that garbage. That's not what the Bible pulls. You take what you have, and you put it in God's hands, it's better than it being in your hands. That is what faith is, isn't it? Because God doesn't know the economy like you do. God isn't sure of your scarcity the way you are. These are, like, these are excuses that we pull. God doesn't understand what's going on. And so we kind of need to control this. It's called good stewardship. So I'm, it's, a, it's a lie when we say good stewardship is us controlling instead of God controlling. 
It's a scary lie because what it does is actually limits our ability to participate in what God wants to do. Jesus wasn't thinking, hey, we need to feed these people. The disciples were. It just so happens that Jesus is like, that's a great idea. Let's make that happen. He doesn't promise a miracle. He doesn't do anything. He holds up the loaves. He holds up the fish. Says a blessing. He actually blesses God. We can, historically, we know what he says. He talks about God being Father, King of the universe, who provides bread from the earth. It's a traditional Jewish blessing that the fathers of the family would have said before the meal. We say that grace thing. They would normally say that afterwards when they were stuffed. Uh, so grace was much more like, oh, Lord, that was awesome. It was a fun prayer, right? Uh, but they had traditional prayers they would say before. You can try that if you want. But it's really good, too, because if the pastor is over and he prays, your food's cold by the time it's time to eat, right? So do the grace after when everyone can sleep through it. But um, when you, Jesus gives this blessing, ascribing kingship of the universe in this traditional Jewish blessing that Jesus, this is the blessing he would have said. Uh, Jesus describes God as king over the universe, the provider of the bread that comes from the earth. And so Jesus submits himself and says, I'm putting this in your hands, God, because you are king over all of this and you are the provider of all of this. And then this miracle happens. I want to read you this quote. Uh, it's from this book, uh, Daring Greatly, by Brené Brown. She has a great TED Talk, and you can read that. But she quotes someone else named uh, Lynn Twist, who wrote a book called The Soul of Money. Um, I'm going to read you this page 25. It says, We get scarcity because we live it. One of, my very, one of my very favorite writers on scarcity is the global activist and fundraiser Lynn Twist. In her book, The Soul of Money, she refers to scarcity as the great lie. And she writes, and this is a quote from this book, The Soul of Money. For me and for many of us, let's see if this resonates, our first waking thought of the day is, I didn't get enough sleep. The next one is, I don't have enough time. Whether true or not, the thought of not enough occurs to us automatically before we even think to question or examine it. We spend most of the hours and the days of our lives hearing, explaining, complaining, and worrying about that we don't having what we don't have enough of. Before we even sit up in bed, before our feet touch the floor, we're already inadequate, already behind, already losing, already lacking something. And by the time we go to bed at night, our minds are racing with a litany of what we didn't get or didn't get done that day. We go to sleep burdened by those thoughts and wake up to the reverie of lack. This internal condition of scarcity, the mindset of scarcity lives at the very heart of our jealousies, our greed, our prejudices, and our arguments with life. And as Christians, I would say that lies at the heart of our arguments with God. If you think back how many times today, it's not even lunch, and how many times today have you thought not enough? I'm not a good enough parent. I don't have enough time to get this thing done. I didn't sleep enough. I'm not successful enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not strong enough or skinny enough or fast enough or cool enough. I'm inadequate. And the resources around me are not adequate either. Isn't it? Like, if there was a definition of our culture, isn't that it? 
and isn't that when it rears its ugly head in the in the in the worst ways isn't that why we'd actually despise who we are on black fridays like why the reason that we like to criticize it because it's a demonstration of what's worse about of the worst things about our culture scarcity and yet we live it all the time and if we talk about jesus giving us freedom I would say it's more than just freedom from sin. It's freedom from living in the culture of the day to the point that it's freedom from living in scarcity. Which doesn't mean you have lots. It means you have enough. What if you have enough sleep because God gave you enough sleep? What if you have enough time today to get everything that God wants you to get done, done? What if... God made you who you are because he believes and gave you the kids that he did or the spouse that he did or the job or the schooling because he believes you're good enough to be that person. Because of the life of Jesus in you. When Jesus throws this banquet, it's enough. The people eat, listen to this, they all ate, this is verse 20, if you have a Bible, underline this, <laughs> they all ate and were satisfied, that means there was enough, they were satisfied, and isn't satisfaction the opposite of scarcity, from not enough to this is enough. Like, you are successful enough, you are tall enough, you're fast enough, you're strong enough. You're enough. Because in God's hands, whatever you are is enough. Jesus throws this banquet where the theme is satisfaction. As opposed to just at the beginning of chapter 14 where Herod throws this banquet and the theme is debauchery, greed, manipulation. Jesus immediately makes a political statement, provides bread and circus to the people, miracles of healing and lots to eat. And Jesus throws down this political statement saying, Caesar says he's Lord, but look at what I'm doing. I'm, interact I'm interacting with the masses. I'm giving them what they need. They are satisfied. In Jesus exists satisfaction outside of him exists scarcity and the great lie like these not even christian authors are saying this is a regular book about it's a book that she quotes about money which if you want to know the second largest god in alabama it's money number one is college football <laughs> but there is if jesus lives with a, and we believe in a different god then the Christians live satisfied lives. And maybe the greatest contrast between people who follow Jesus and people who don't is I am satisfied. Probably you know a couple people like that. And they're probably old. Because it's really hard to get there, isn't it? You're going to see a thousand messages today that tell you you should not be satisfied because you don't have enough, you're not successful enough, you need to, like, everything out there you need to be grabbing for. 
it's, it's all over the place. It's, it's advertising, it's media, it's conversations that we have. It's our inner monologue when you woke up and said, I didn't sleep enough. I don't have enough time today. You know, it's terrible. I said this yesterday. Oh, I'm stressed because I don't have enough time to get the thing. I'm preaching this tomorrow, the next day, and this is my inner monologue. I'm stressed because I don't have enough time. I've had a ton of time. Like, I have time for days, literally. And yet my monologue says, it's not enough. And if I keep this in my hands, maybe I can squeeze more out of this, and I don't want to hand it over to God. Because, not because I think I'm better, because I have a lack of faith in God's provision. That's the struggle, and that's going to be the work. And hopefully someday, that doesn't define me. And hopefully every day, I a little more am able to say, I don't live in scarcity. I live with an incredible amount of access to everything that God has. And the things that I find on this earth that are unjust, I can contribute to and put myself in God's hands. And not, I'm not just talking about contribute to monetarily. Contribute to in the way that I live. Like, I'm not saying you need to give money away, but I'm going to live oriented towards the things of God and then put them in God's hands and the impact will be multiplied. And even if it isn't, it doesn't matter because I don't live in scarcity anymore. I don't have the attitude of not enough. Isn't that where you want to be? When Jesus breaks the bread, it foreshadows the night before he dies. When Jesus broke bread with his disciples, the same disciples that saw him do this before, and they think, dang, that means huge feast coming, right? Like if Jesus, every time he breaks bread, it multiplies, I'd be like, right on, because I'm hungry. They've been up late. Jesus, can you break this pizza, please? And this blueberry dessert, because I like that. <laughs> but Jesus breaks bread, and the disciples are all these memories rushing through them. And Jesus actually breaks the bread and then says, this bread is my body, which is broken for you. And that's confusing in that moment, because they're thinking back and they're like, well, what is that? And how many times has Jesus done this? And what was he actually pointing to? And then Jesus takes a cup of wine and says, this cup represents the new covenant which is established by my blood. And for a couple of thousand years, Christians have been reenacting this Last Supper. We call it communion or the Eucharist. And we do this together. And we take a little piece of bread and a little cup of juice. We use juice, not wine. And we eat it and we drink it to remind ourselves that the body and blood of Jesus is enough. His broken body on that cross and his shed blood, which established the new covenant where we have full relationship with God, is enough. In a minute, the band's going to come up and, and we're going to worship together and we're actually going to open these tables. We have a couple at the front and a couple at the back. And while we're worshiping, we want to encourage you to participate in a meal where there is enough. Not that you're going to come up here and grab a whole handful of bread and all the cups because you're really thirsty. It doesn't mean you're going to have lots. 
But the broken body of Jesus and the shed blood of Jesus is enough. Even a little bit of it is enough. And you don't have to live in the lie of scarcity anymore because we have the hope of Jesus. We don't require membership for communion. The Bible requires you be a follower of Jesus. And so if you're a follower of Jesus today, we want to invite you to participate. You don't have to be a member of the church or whatever thoughts you have as far as that goes. This is a ritual for followers of Jesus. And if you don't define yourself that way, we'd encourage you not to participate because we believe that someday maybe you will find yourself as a follower of Jesus and then this will carry an incredible amount of meaning. We also don't do this very organized. We do it more like a family dinner or a family Thanksgiving. And so you don't have, if people start lining up, please pass them. Cut into line. If people are standing at the front of the table, go to the back of the table. Because there is enough. And we don't have to stand there and wonder. And when you come and you take some communion and you see someone else and you're looking at each other, you're eating this together. Because this is the way that Jesus intended it that we have each other, and we have the Spirit of God, and that is enough. Let me pray for us, and then we'll participate in this way. The people who are serving as table hosts want to move to their positions. Lord, together, as I have just done, and we together now, we want to confess our sin of living with the ideas of the world, the ideas of scarcity, the idea that there's only so many loaves of bread and there's only so many fish to go around. I want to just, from my heart and from our hearts, confess that to you. And like in a real way, we're sorry for living in that way when we have full access to everything that you are. And we want to ask that you would bring us to a place where we don't just believe that you're enough, but we actually live in that way. Help us to be those people. Dangerous people who are satisfied with God. And satisfied with the hope of Jesus, filled with the Spirit. May you forgive us of our sin. Cleanse us anew as your shed blood promises to do. And allow us to participate in the meal of communion or the Eucharist together as a church, as a church here, as a church historically, since this is what we've been doing for a couple of thousand years. May you be all for us, everything for us, satisfactory. And may we put everything that we have and everything that we are in your hands because that's a much better place for it to be. Give us that grace. Amen.